Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Laura Thomas, a former case officer and chief of base at the Central Intelligence Agency. She served over 15 years in various national security roles. Laura, we are excited to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Megan. I'm really excited to talk to you today. All right, well, let's get into it. So usually we lead with the same question about how you got into the IC. So were you always interested in national security and how did you find your way to the CIA? Yes, I mean, I, I remember from sort of the earliest ages being incredibly interested in the Central Intelligence Agency. And I think it was probably due to movies and, and the way that it was portrayed in the media. I, I, I'm from a small one-stop light town and it was a wonderful place to grow up in rural North Carolina, but not a lot of excitement happened there. So, and I just knew there was such a, a big world out there that, that I read about in books or I, I saw on TV and I knew I wanted to see it. So, you know, the idea of being able to travel the world on secret missions, I mean, that, that really appealed to me, but I mean, where I'm from, and I think in my family situation, I mean, there were only a few careers that, that, you know, my parents really pushed me towards, and it was being a school teacher or a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer. And by the time I was in late in high school, I mean, the CIA had sort of dropped off my radar. I didn't think it was really possible. And I abandoned it. I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I went to college. And I remember my freshman year sitting in my dorm room, September 11th. And I remember watching the second tower uh, fall. And I, I remember seeing the plane hit it and that completely altered my thinking. I mean, I knew from that point on that I wanted to do something to help prevent an attack like that from ever happening again. And from that moment on, I, I, I enrolled in a, a counterterrorism course and I started studying Arabic. And I, I remember I read the, the counterterrorism course textbook within a week uh, of starting the course. And I was hooked. I, I knew I loved it. And um, I, I asked my parents if they would let me study abroad in Jordan, because I knew that if I went and I, I studied in Jordan and learned Arabic there, that I'd probably have a better shot at getting hired by the agency. And they did. And I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that. And as soon as I graduated college, I mean, I think the week of, I put in my application and I hope for the best. And I also applied for the FBI, but uh, they never called me back. So um, I remember getting a phone call one day and it was from one of those unknown numbers. And it was a lady on the other end of the call. And she asked if I was interested in interviewing for the National Clandestine Service. And nowadays that's what we call the Directorate of Operations. And she asked if I would like to go 
through the interview process because I had applied to be an analyst and I leapt at the chance and uh, I was off to the races. And then funny enough, though, a, a few weeks after that, someone from the directorate of analysis called and they wanted to interview me for the analyst position. And um, I think they were a little annoyed because it seems like the DO had, had poached my application. I love that. That is, uh, that is a great beginning. So you find yourself in this operational role, right? You're joining and you're in this operational role. How did you prepare for that? I mean, did you have to prepare for that? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how well you can actually prepare for it um, now that I've gone through it. But um, I think I did what every applicant does. I watched as many spy movies as I could. And um, it certainly, I mean, they got me very excited, but I can't say they, they really helped me understand the job. And I, I read a, a lot of books and I did my internet sleuthing, of course. And I, the CIA, the website, the official website, they, there's a, a reading list on the website. And I read a number of those books and I'm glad I did because I was certainly asked about that in the interview process. Um, and then I read a few other books. Uh, one was called Class 11. And it gives you a flavor of what training is like. But I think what many people outside the agency don't realize is a lot of those books are, are very exaggerated. And the only thing that really prepares you uh, for an operational role is just having a desire to learn and common sense. That's a good segue to, you know, what do you find makes a good case officer? Empathy. If I had to choose one trait that that is, I think, the most important, it would certainly be empathy. I mean, the best case officers I know, there are people who genuinely care to, to know how another person thinks and feels. And I mean, a, a good CO, they really practice self-inquiry and they're open to changing their minds and, and views and they don't view rightness or wrongness about a person or a certain topic as a measure of self-worth. And they're really good at evaluating others, but not necessarily judging others. And sometimes that's a really um, fine line and sort of hard line to, to walk. But I think that they realize that, you know, most human behavior, it, it's in context uh, of an environment. And really good people can do really bad things and really bad people, they can do really good things. And there's this massive amount, I think, of cognitive dissonance at play. And um, you have to be able to hold two opposing views in your head at once and, and knowing that these are opposing views, but still be able to make decisions and act in any given scenario despite that. And you know, I, I can give you an example. In one aspect, you have to genuinely care about the well-being of a target, uh, a source, someone that we've recruited. And you, you want to do everything in your power to keep that person and their family safe. But at the same time, you're recruiting that person to spy. And it, you know, you're putting them in harm's way because that's what spying, you know, is. So, and to be clear, I mean, our sources, they know that they're going into harm's way. And if, if they don't know, we certainly, we try to make sure that they, they understand that. Um, but the fact is, if they're discovered, uh, 
they can be imprisoned or executed and their family could be financially destitute, um, their reputation ruined. So for me, I think it was a constant struggle and it is a constant struggle. And this is the dissonance in, you know, thinking, did I do something or did I make a decision that could um, get that person arrested? And how would that impact that person's family? And that weighed very heavily on me. I would say it certainly kept me up at night at times. And um, I think a good case officer has to be able to carry that around in their head and yet still make good decisions and exercise good judgment. And that's, that's not always easy. Do you still think about that sometimes? Or is it more when you're there and you're in that recruitment process? I'll never not think about it. Mm, wow. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about gender in this role. Did you find that your gender made a difference uh, as a case officer? Yeah, uh, sometimes being a woman, I think certainly helped in developing certain targets and, and recruiting them. I mean, it's the nature of espionage that most targets are men because most positions of power and influence in the world are are still held by men. And I think it's human nature that I, as a woman, can approach pretty much anyone and engage them in conversation and they don't feel threatened by me. Um, and a male case officer might not always have the same capability. And if, if the male target that I'm approaching, if, if he's a narcissist or a misogynist, I mean, it just makes my job all the easier, actually. I mean, <laughs> probably has a deep need for um, ego stroking and and, yeah. and I, I can't tell you how many intelligence reports I wrote by virtue of a man mansplaining. So, I mean, it, I think in a job like this, though, you, you kind of have you have to be as objective as you can and you have to recognize that strengths and weaknesses, they're defined by the society we're in and society doesn't always get that right. I mean, society's definitions are not always true. And while it's important for me to fight for equality, I just had to accept that in some aspects of the job, the world doesn't really operate by our standards. And I would always have to tell myself, you know, Laura, you're here to cross the swamp today. You're not here to fight all the alligators. And sometimes that's hard. And I think it's hard for anybody who has a really strong sense of right and wrong and, and desire to seek justice. Um, I think but being a woman in a traditionally male dominated career, it, you know, it's changing. There are a lot of women case officers now. And some of the men at the agency, they've they've been the most supportive people in my career. At the same time, I've had to deal with a few men who did not realize that the 1950s were are not present day. Um, fortunately, they're the minority, but I mean, one is one too many. So can you give us some examples of, of that um, throughout your career? Uh, I think the best example would probably be in, in my first tour, I was a first tour officer. I was serving in a war zone and our boss there, he made us ask for permission to bring alcohol to our asset meetings. And he kept the alcohol in a, in a cabinet under lock and key, which I, I thought was a little strange to begin with. But um, anyway, it was, it was a holiday and a time that you would traditionally have a toast 
And I was meeting with an asset who, before his country became war-torn, he grew grapes and made his own wine. And we had talked about this, you know, pretty extensively in previous meetings. And he hadn't had access to alcohol in a really long time. So I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. I could bring a bottle of wine to the meeting and right. we could have toast. So I asked my boss, I said, hey, I'd, I'd really like to bring a bottle to the meeting. And I just remember he looked at me and he said, well, no, as a woman, you can't be trusted to drink and do your job. And then he said, well, what if you end up dancing on the table? No. Well, I was completely taken aback. Um, I mean, I had never done anything that would indicate that you give me a glass of wine and I'm, the next thing I do is dance on the table. Well, and the generalization of that, that yeah. statement, right? I mean, yeah. it's not even about you. It's the generalization of like, right. you're a woman and you're going to have a glass of wine and dance on the table. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of look back and I'm, I was angry at myself for a long time with my response because I just froze and I, I was a deer in headlights. I didn't know what to say. And um, he, I remember he followed it up with, I'll let you take one beer to the meeting and you can split the beer between you and the asset. And of, of course, I took a beer to a meeting and I, I didn't force the asset to split it with me. I gave it to the asset. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the joke was on that boss, though, because he ended up being removed from his position uh, for a whole separate spate of issues. And I was promoted to acting chief of base in his, in his place. And that same asset who used to grow grapes and, and loved wine. Well, I took five bottles of wine to nice. the next meeting with him and we did a wine tasting and it was a, a wonderful meeting. I learned so much about him as a person and, you know, about his childhood and many of the fears that he had. And I remember going to turn over that asset to another case officer when I was leaving my tour and I was having a meeting alone with the asset before I introduced the other officer. And he, he raised the wine tasting meeting with me. He said, you know, I will never forget that meeting. I, I felt then that you really cared about me. And that's when I knew that you really cared. And because I knew you cared, it makes me think the U S government really cares. And that from that point on, I've, I'm going to do everything I can and everything I collect intelligence wise for the U.S. government, I'm going to do it with even more vigor. So, I, I mean, what that brings me back to is it's just it's so important that that we have conversations with officers on boundaries and what's acceptable and, and what's not and really holding senior officers accountable for when they cross those boundaries. And I, I think the agency, I mean, it's certainly made great strides. It's, certainly since I started there, um, but it has room to grow like so many other organizations. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was a, that was a great story. So I'm wondering what are the misconceptions um, you noticed about case officers that once you started doing this work were just what they're, what I said, misconceptions, like how, how did your day-to-day differ from when you watched James Bond or reading some of those books that, you know, made it a very sexy type of career? Yeah. Well, I, I can't talk about the James Bond moments and, and there were a few, um, but I, there were many other moments. I'll, I'll call them, I can't believe I get paid to do this moments. Mm. And I mean, they, they were all inspiring. It's like being the first 
official to report back incredibly sensitive foreign policy changing material and know that it's being briefed to the president um, or, or being responsible for the resettlement of assets and their families. And you know, not lately because of COVID, but whenever I fly into the United States from abroad and, and I go through customs and immigration, sometimes, you know, when I see the, the welcome to the United States banner and I, I see the flag, it does make me tear up a little bit because I'm thinking in my mind, what was it like for some of those assets to enter the United States for the first time, knowing that they were doing so because of the risk they took for us and um, the work that they did. And, um, you know, th those are pretty powerful uh, moments that I've had in my career. There were many other very typical moments. I, I can't tell you how many times I got on an airplane and I just looked completely disheveled because I had been working nonstop days prior and, you know, somewhat laughing on the inside because the people sitting beside me on the flight had no idea what job or what operation I was going to do when we landed at our destination. And, um, you know, to them, I was just a fellow passenger commiserating over the, the airplane food and the sad omelets and the little fruit cups that you get. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, most of my career, I would say is it's writing cables and sort of setting strategy and arguing for resources and navigating bureaucracy. And I would say, if you don't like thinking deeply about strategy and how to get a lot of people on the same page to achieve that strategy, then maybe the agency is not the place for you. Well, and I think a lot of people, that's a misconception that a lot of people have as well, is that I don't think they understand how much you are writing, how much, yes. you know, it, it is heavy on the writing. Very heavy on the writing. I would say 85%. Oh, wow. It's good. It's good for our listeners who are thinking about this career. I think it's important to know that. <laughs> um, so could you share a little, uh, share with us a bit about what made the decision for you to leave this career that you had? There were a few reasons. Um, first, there are emerging technologies that are out there on the horizon and they're going to dramatically change our world. And it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And we just can't afford to get our policies around those technologies wrong. And quantum computing is a great example. I mean, the CIA is not going to build a quantum computer. That's going to be the government partnering with private industry. And for me, I, I really, as I see sort of the, these emerging technologies and the associated threat of them, I really wanted to be on the cutting edge of emerging tech. And the place to do that, it's not in the government, it's in these small innovative companies. Um, and the CIA, I mean, it's not a policy arm. The CIA is, is you know, part of the executive. And what I really wanted to do and what I've realized over the last few years is go out and get industry experience in the tech sector and then hopefully go back into government in a tech policy role a little bit later in life. And um, I also realized, I think that, you know, I would have had to wait at least 10 years before I could have a really senior role at the agency. And it's just the nature of, of the government. There's time and grade. And um, 
mean, uh, unless you're a political appointee, you, you won't even be considered for certain roles. And I mean, there are practical reasons for it. You, you don't want to put someone in a position of great authority if they don't have the requisite experience, um, especially when you know, you're making decisions that are life and death. But you know, just as age isn't necessarily a guarantee of maturity, uh, experience is not necessarily a guarantee of, of competency. And yeah, I had been put into positions of, of significant sort of responsibility early in my career. And in some ways, I think I peaked a little too early. Um, I, was, I was in a chief of base role where I was handling more personnel and, and resources than a number of stations around the world. And I realized that, you know, despite that, I still would have to wait quite a long time before I could step up into to even more senior roles. So tell us a little bit more about about the chief of station role. You know, um, what does what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, the chief of station is the person overseas who pretty much runs all the operations for that country. And I mean, not too long before I left the agency, I had applied and had, had received a chief of station, which we call COS role, and. Um, you know, what I haven't mentioned yet is that I'm gay and I'm married to a woman. And I think in some ways I've, I've sort of lived a double life inside of a double life because of this. But the, the COS position, it was in a, a country where it was legally acceptable um, to have a same sex you know, couple there, but it wasn't socially acceptable. And shortly after I heard that I got the job, my wife got pregnant. And uh, we were due to have our son only a couple months before we were supposed to leave for this country. And um, you know, I was going to have to take extra training. And I knew my mind was just not going to be where it should be um, because I knew we'd have a little baby at home and I'd be leaving my wife all alone with him. And I mean, there, there are plenty of agency and U.S. military people who, I mean, they they make these sorts of sacrifices all the time. And I just, I chose not to. And quite frankly, I probably shouldn't have even applied for that position knowing that it was in a place that wasn't very accepting of, of you know, me and her and our children. And then I think I'd heard that there were some attacks on LGBTQ people in that country. And I think we just decided not to accept it. So, you know, there's this level of sort of culture in the agency. It's, it makes you sort of feel like you should be grateful for any assignment that you're given. And there's this aura of saying yes and um, not saying no, that's really applauded. And in some ways we should be very proud of the, those sacrifices. Um, but in some other ways, I think it, it creates a culture that glosses over the need for real change by labeling a preference for the status quo is sacrifice. But I mean, there's a lot more to unpack than in this podcast. Um, but I mean, back to my decision to leave, COVID played a role. And I think the final nail in the coffin was January 6th. And I mean, I was certainly leaving before January 6th, but just seeing the Confederate flag paraded around the halls of the Capitol, I mean, that crystallized the decision for me. And I took an oath that was to protect the 
U.S. Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And the fact is, the CIA exists really for only one threat, the foreign one. Mm -hmm. But, you know, our most urgent threat right now is domestic and technology is exacerbating this. Um, Foreign powers are certainly exacerbating it um, and the media is exacerbating it, but the main threat's here. And I I was ready to be able to play a more, a role on the domestic front as well. I wanna go back a little bit and ask, you know, how did you reconcile the tension between advancing your own career, uh, the mission of the agency and your specific role and potentially making change in countries unfriendly to the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I guess I go back to the phrase, you know, I'm, I'm here today to cross the swamp, not to fight all the alligators. Um, I mean, being gay was, it was certainly limiting and what foreign assignments that I could take. You know, the, the fact is a lot of countries, they don't provide diplomatic accreditation to same-sex spouses. And I mean, th- there are workarounds, for example, um, my spouse, she accompanied me to one tour uh, as my maid. She was on the paperwork as my maid. And that that joke really never got old in our house, especially when I would come home from a long day of work and there would be dishes in the sink and (laughs) the laundry would be done. Um, But, you know, I think having a child in the picture, it it does, you know, that's that's easy. But having a child in the picture sort of complicates things. And we were really concerned, like, what what would happen if if I were in a, a car wreck? with, with our child and I was incapacitated and the child was in the hospital. Could she make decisions for, for us? You know, could she take custody of him? And we just didn't want to, to risk that. You know, I I think the U S government can and should do more um, to advocate for LGBTQ couples to be able to serve abroad in, in more places. I mean, when the U S government speaks, other countries listen and, you know, sometimes they certainly don't like what they hear, but we have a voice and having a voice is a really powerful thing. I think in some cases we we just err on the side of comfort and we tell ourselves, oh, well, you know, now isn't the right time or we find some other reason to, to not have hard conversations. Right. And I've seen that a few times in my career, unfortunately. But you know, on the whole, I'll say the agency was incredibly supportive um, to me as a gay woman. And um, if I had really wanted to advance my career at the agency, I, I certainly could have. I think I just, I mentally, I had moved on to other visions. And I, you know, I, I'll say, if you're listening to this podcast and you're gay and you're thinking, maybe I shouldn't apply to the agency just because I'm gay, I would, I would really ask you to reconsider um, the agency needs you and, and needs your service. What would you say to individuals who are working to create change in this bureaucracy, um, you know, in the government uh, that's that's really resistant to change? I, I think the best thing that I could say is learn when to fight and when to yield. And I think it's one of the hardest lessons to learn because there isn't a clear aha moment to to know that you've learned it. And, you know, we humans, we are masters of self-delusion and self-justification. There's a really great great, uh, quote by famous physicist Richard Feynman, and he said, you know, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. And um, 
I think following that a little bit to its natural conclusion is, is a good thing. Um, it, what I'll say is not helpful is just being one of those people that rages against the machine and rages against the bureaucracy because right. you'll just sit in neutral and you'll lose credibility. I mean, it's, it's draining to navigate a bureaucracy. And I think the problem is by the time that, you know, someone is senior enough to actually change the bureaucracy, they've been fighting for so long and they're so tired. And then they're in a position then where it's easier to just let the system be than, than fix it. And, you know, it's a vicious cycle. It takes a really strong character um, to, and self-inquiry to break it. And I'd say to anyone who faces this challenge, you know, or pretty much any challenge, always start with self-inquiry. Thank you. So one thing that you said was that you felt like you were living a double life inside a double life. What resources are available to others who might find themselves in a similar situation? Uh, you know, Jack Kerouac, he has a really good quote. Uh, he said, one day I'll find the words and they will be simple. And I'm still searching for those words. I mean, I, I was not always out as gay and my career was clandestine by nature. So that that's my reference to living a double life inside a double life um, for me. It was it was not okay to be gay in the town that I grew up, and it was not okay in my family either. And um, yeah, I didn't even realize that I was gay until I was in my early 30s, and I'm still trying to understand how that was. I mean, there were certainly signs in retrospect, and I, I just I think I didn't really think deeply about those signs. And I don't know if it was immaturity or if it was just all that I had internalized um, about how being gay was wrong. And, you know, for me personally, for someone whose sole job pretty much was to evaluate others and seek the truth, it was a real internal reckoning for me to think that I had really missed some major truths of my own. And, um, yeah, I hid being gay for about a year. And I, I did it for that long because I knew the repercussions of coming out and um, I knew was what was at stake. And I, I, I thought I would probably lose my family. And, um, you know, I, I was doing everything right according sort of to the plan that society and my family had laid out for me. And I mean, this, this plan, it was not laid out with, with ill intent or malice it's just so everyone sort of stays in their perfect comfort and doesn't have to feel the discomfort of their views being challenged. And um, I just, I feared what life was gonna be like without sort of the affirmation of my family and a sense of belonging. And for a while I felt the reality of, of that pain and, and what that feels like. But I did learn and discover that if people really love you and um, you know, they really do care, then they'll find a way to move past that discomfort. And, you know, with my own family, I'll say it's, it's taken a few years and it's still not perfect, but um, I have seen the love that a parent has for their child. And even when it goes against everything they were raised to believe. And I think that's just such a powerful lesson in the human capacity to, to love and, um, you know, that, that keeps me going. So, uh, you know, for, 
for the advice I would say or resources, I would just say, don't be afraid to look inward at yourself. And when you do that, don't be afraid of what you see. Wow, that was very powerful. And I can't even imagine what an incredibly trying time that must have been for you to go through. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, sure. So switching gears a bit, this past year has been filled with exciting changes for you. Um, you recently transitioned out of the government. You had a baby um, and you started a new job. So tell us a bit about what's next for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a whole new world. I, my wife, she gave birth during the pandemic and we have the sweetest little boy. Uh, he's wonderful. He, Yay, he, congratulations. He, thank you. He keeps us on our toes. And three weeks ago, I began a new uh, position with an early stage quantum technology company. It's called Cold Quanta. And quantum is an emerging technology that's getting a lot of attention now from the US government, as well as a lot of industry titans. And I, you know, for reasons of, of national security and economic security. So my new mission sort of is to make sure that the government and industry really understands the value of quantum readiness and sort of coupled with the threat of, of what being unprepared for it uh, could bring. And I've been reading a lot about physics lately, and I came across <laughs> a quote uh, by Niels Bohr, a, another famous physicist I've referenced to now in this podcast, just to tell you how much I've been reading about physics. But he said, those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. And I mean, I was shocked. And I certainly didn't understand it. And I, I can't say that I fully do now either, but um, I've had a lot of discussions lately with some of the cold quanta physicists and engineers, as well as a, a number of others throughout the industry and in the government. And I have, a, I have a much better sense of the implications that quantum has for our world. And I mean, it has the potential to alter so many things. I mean, just the speed at which we discover new drugs, uh, how we build certain materials, how we navigate from points A to B, um, using quantum positioning systems rather than GPS, for example. Um, I mean, it could even address things like the current climate crisis that we're facing. So, you know, it, it, there is so much value proposition here. And um, it, it, there's, I think like many technologies, it's a double-edged sword. You know, there's incredible value, but there's also an incredible threat. And that you... was my next question. I, I, you know, when you're talking about this, it makes me think about the rise of the internet, right? We thought all of those things about the rise of the internet, but now we look at national security implications and cyber and all of those things. And so I, I'm wondering the same thing about quantum, right? Like it is a double-edged sword and thinking about it in that respect as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you put enough atoms and you array them together in, 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 the, in the right way, I mean, it, it can create massive computational power. And it's so great that it could, it could break all current encryption systems. And I mean, you have to think about what does that actually mean? I mean, it means all U.S. government communications would no longer be secure and it would jeopardize, you know, the privacy of emails and the way we do our banking transactions. And of course, there are, you know, there's a lot of research being done in this area. There's a thing called post-quantum cryptography that will address some of that. But nonetheless, I mean, our adversaries, they are out there and pouring billions of dollars into 
uh, quantum technologies. So it's something that you know we really need to be paying attention to. Well, we have come to the end where I ask my last question, which I think might be a little bit hard for you to answer. So let's see. Um, we end each episode with our with the same question, and in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly. Um, if you had to give yourself a code name, I'm sure you had many code names, but if you had to give yourself one, what would it be and why? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Other names that I have been associated, they're, they're still classified. So, I mean, I asked my wife this question and um, she's my closest confidant. So I thought she would probably have the best answer. And she instantly, without missing a beat, responded with Firefly. And oh. she did that because my role was to illuminate the dark. So I thought that was that was pretty sweet. Um, and not to mention, it's the name of the restaurant where we had our first date. So I, I think that may have also had something to do with it. Oh, um, my goodness. Know. I love that. I love yeah, it. I, I, look, I can't say that I've fully lived up to illuminating the dark necessarily in my career and in my life. But, um, you know, I'm, I've tried and I'm still trying. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, Thank you for your service and thank you for continuing to be a leader in this community. This was a lot of fun and I hope you had fun today too. Absolutely, my pleasure. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grand Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time. Thank you.